So this uh, final session uh, is titled The Past is the Present and the Future. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our main speaker and our respondent. Our main speaker is Professor Christine Ross. Um, Christine Ross is Professor and James Major Chair in Contemporary Art History in the Department of Art History and Communication Studies at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, she's taken up the directorship of media at McGill, a hub of interdisciplinary research, scholarship and outreach and issues related to media, technology and culture. So in many ways, I think, a partner uh, or, or parallel organisation to the Institute for Visual Research here. Um, her main field of research is contemporary media arts and in particular the relationship between media, aesthetics and that term returns again, subjectivity, visuality, spectatorship and interactivity as well as augmented reality and reconfigurations of time and temporality in recent media arts. Among her books are a wonderful book called The Aesthetics of Disenga uh, Disengagement, Contemporary Art and Depression, which was published by University of Minnesota Press in 2006, and quite recently a, a book that's already becoming quite influential, um, especially among artists, that was published by Bloomsbury uh, last year, last year, year before, yeah. Yeah. called The Past is the Present, It's the Future Too. Our respondents is uh, Dr. Amelia Barakin, and Amelia uh, completed her PhD at the University of Melbourne, an award-winning PhD, winning the Chancellor's Prize. That PhD subsequently became this book, Parallel Presence, The Art of Pierre Week, which was published by the MIT Press in 2012, another superb book. Amelia is currently a University of Queensland postdoctoral fellow in the School of English, Media Studies and Art History at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. It's a wonderful pleasure to have you both here, the floor is yours, Christine. Okay, so I want to reiterate and thank you for the invitation, and it's been a wonderful um, occasion to dig back into the question of, uh, of time. Uh, um, and so I hope you still have the energy to, uh, to listen to me. Uh, um, so, um, but here I, here I start. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's entitled, I mean, what I'm going to be doing with actually is sort of a reactualization of, of long durée. So, in his future's past on the semantics of historical time, 1979, a study on the temporality of history, the philosopher of history, Renard Koselec, defined historical time as the articulation of the past, present, and future in which and by which history is given a meaning, a value, and an orientation. His work um, is key to the understanding of the temporal gaps of modern historicity. Modern historical time, he argues, unfolds, um, is lived, is conceptualized as a growing asymmetry between two temporalities. So on the one hand, the space of experience, and on the other hand, the horizon of expectation. So the space of, uh, so the asymmetry between the space of experience, which is defined as a present past, whose events have been incorporated and can be remembered, and the horizon of expectation, the future made present, which directs itself to the not yet, the non-experienced, uh, to that which is to be revealed. So the growing asymmetry of historical time, of modern historical time, between the past as remembered in the present and the future as anticipated from the present is conditioned by the idea of, modern, of modernity as a promise of progress. For the modern subject, progress is achievable in the future, but only if that future constitutes itself through the depreciation of the past. 
This asymmetry is, all, is also conditioned by the accelerating pace of the modern world, shaped by developments in technologies of communication and rates of production. This space, this space uh, leaves uh, human agents with briefer time spans to experience the present as the present. Following this space, the self-accelerating temporality escapes into a future while placing heavier and heavier demands on that future. So picking up on Kosedek's notion of historical time, but replacing it by the term regimes of historicity, French historian François Hartog has recently maintained that, at least since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, which has come to crystallize the fall of communism, one of the last emancipatory narratives of the 20th century, the modern progress-oriented regime of historicity has been substituted by a regime which abolishes the prerogative of the future to promote instead the prerogative of the present. Um, after designated this regime as presentist, in this new regime, the present has become the privileged temporal category through which the past and the future are being not only understood, but more problematically absorbed. This present is a devouring present in, uh, um, in relation to which the, the, the production of historical uh, time seems suspended. The, the catastrophes of the 20th century, wars, genocides, ideological disasters, are traumatically perceived as past futures uh, um, gone wrong and whose emancipatory potential for a better life can barely be reimagined. The past and the future only exist now through the prism of the present. The, the past is what one struggles but can barely remember in the present, and the future is what one fears in the present with the expectation that it will go wrong again. Attuck's study is, is perceptive, but the notion of presentism is a generalizing term endowed with the forces and limits that always accompany generalizations. To privilege the present uh, might also entail the critical requirement, and this is more properly indicative of what I call the temporal term uh, in contemporary art, um, to imagine a future which conditions um, the present, uh, um, which conditions, uh, to imagine a future which is, I'm sorry, which is conditioned by the present past. This is my main claim, as it strives to counter the futurism of, modern regime, of the modern regime of historicity, its progress-oriented temporality, art from the 1990s on, at least, <coughs> endeavors to past-presentify it, not in the sense of making history present or constructing an absolute present beyond objects and events, rather in the sense of complicating the connection between the three categories of time, past, present, and future, in ways that activate the past in the present long enough so that it can begin to shape the future in that process. The retention of the past in the present is an attempt to weaken the modern gap between the field of experience and the horizon of expectation. So today I will focus on the work by an artist who has played a significant role, significant role in the aesthetic rethinking of historical time, Canadian-born Vancouver-based artist Stan Douglas. The singularity of Douglas's work lies in its unique engagement with the historical narrative, 
as a means to resolve the futurism of the modern regime of historicity. By historical narrative, I mean the narrative developed by the historian, or in this case, by the artist as historian, to use Mark Godfrey's expression, to order and represent, uh, the, the, to order and represent uh, um, the past. So as, as the historian Hayden White has suggested, it is because the past is not directly perceivable that a narrative is required. But Paul Ricard's own study on the historical narrative also proposes that, by virtue of its narrative structure, the historical plot elaborated by the historian or the artist as historian is a method of explanation, comprehension, and representation. More importantly, however, its significance and productivity come from its ultimate referent, which is temporality itself. This observation highlights the inseparability of historiography, time, and narrativity. It exposes that the narrative is one of the vital means by which humans provide meaning to the times of their lives in relation to the cosmos. The narrative structures the articulation of the past, present, and future. So Levinson's historical narratives are critical accounts, in general, of modernity. Its modernisms, its diverse utopias of emancipation, its colonial thrust, um, its exclusion of subjects and events to do, uh, um, that do not fit in its progress-oriented uh, oriented theology. His critical accounts materialize in videos and films that narrate modernity while performing the crisis and near exhaustion of the narrative. The narrative only forms on the screen by being deformed through a complex exploration of looping structures, fictional insertions, repetitions, and permutation devices, as well as techniques of randomness. To appreciate the originality of these accounts, it is important, however, to highlight the temporality of Douglas's historical narrative. His work dismisses any presumption that modernity, modernity is behind us. It breaks up, but does not abandon the modern historical narrative, and it makes the past endure into the present to eventually raise the question of what it is to be done with modernity and how it can still generate possibilities. What is the productivity, that's my question, what is the productivity of that temporal investigation? How does, um, it's, uh, how does it presentify or past presentify the modern regime of historicity? So my main claim is that Douglas's historical narratives retain the past into the present in ways that keep, uh, um, that keep that keep preventing the resolution of the narrative. This might seem as a problem, and it is, it is experienced as a problem for the spectator, yet this irresolution is what can, is, is what can in fact generate possibilities for the future. So in Klatsassin 2006, the video work I will examine today, this irresolution results from the conversions of at least three aesthetic operations. First, the random, and I'll be discussing these three, so the first, the random recombination of the narrative sequences. Secondly, the disruption of testimony as a cornerstone of the historical narrative. And thirdly, the overall temporalization of the historical narrative 
as an unperceivable long, long duration. So before looking into these three, uh, um, these three operations, uh, let me first um, give you a sense of Klatsassin's uh, storyline and narrative structure. Okay, so I'll keep it here for a moment. Uh, um, this, dub uh, this dub western, designated as such by Douglas, is based on a specific historical, on, on two specific historical uh, um, events, namely, uh, um, or more precisely, the gold rush that occurred in the mid-19th century in the region of the Caribou Mountains in British Columbia, and secondly, the Tsimkot Im insurgency that was held in response to this feverish migration of workers <coughs> and investors. The gold rush was an important one. It attracted thousands of American and European miners, bringing uh, about a substantial development of the road networks to allow prospectors and miners to access the gold fields. One of these roads was to, was to eventually cross the Tsilkotin um, territory located on the Tsilkotin Plateau. In 1862, miners coming from, from San Francisco disembarked from the Brother Jonathan steamship, transforming with them the smallpox virus, initiating a major epidemic that was particularly devastating to the Indian population, which had no immunity to the virus. In 1864, Klatsassin, which means we don't know your name, um, who is in fact, or who was in fact a Tsilkot in chief, fought against the men engaged in the constructions of the road crossing the, the Tsilkot in uh, national territory. Uh, 14 men were killed in that day um, with the objective of blocking the passage of Americans and Europeans. He was eventually trialed for murder and hanged, accused of having massacred a group of white men. Other prisoners were released, but one Tsilkot in suspect was to be transferred to New Westminster for identification. The suspect managed to escape. He was never found, and he comes back, however, in Douglas's Klatsassin as a corpus directi, a body of crime. So the world does not stage the Tsilkot in uh, insurgency, but develops six narrative air axes corresponding to different moments of the story. And so these different moments are before uh, the, mur the murder of the deputy sheriff, who was killed in 1860, um, 1864 as he was transporting the Tsilkotin prisoner, but also on that day of the, of the murder and also after the murder. And so you have these different, uh, um, these different moments through which the different narratives, six narratives in whole, are going to develop. So what I'm going to do now is just show an excerpt, and then well, uh, I'll go back to, uh, I'll go back to this. Okay. So, um, so about Klatsassin, uh, 2006, a single screen video installation whose running time is 67 hours. Douglas stipulates. It takes days for all the permutations to play out, and that makes it virtually impossible for two different viewers to see the same thing the same way. It would take about three days to see the piece, uh, okay, end of quote. So it would take about three days to see the piece in all of its variations. And it is the case that 
our viewing is highly determined by the moment we walk in and out of the exhibition space. Um, as in, uh, so the single, the, the single screen installation allows for 840 variations, each with an average duration of approximately five minutes. As in all of Douglas's recombinant video or 16 millimeter installations, time falls out of joint with, uh, with and as a system. The historical narratives performed in these installations are structured by computer-generated algorithms, a computer-generated randomization program that sequence and recombine scenes with every loop until the exhaustion of all the possible combinations of the program. Fragments of footage are preordained to occupy changing positions in intercut sequences. The scenes are consequently distant to be repeated and to remix with other sequences. Repetition, permutation, and recombination undermine the coherence of the narrative in a substantial way by multiplying variations that follow each other without hierarchy and by inscribing the narratives in a sequence without a conclusion. There are, narrative, uh, there are narrative structuring devices that contribute to the irresolution of the historical narrative, the endless combinatory possibilities for mixing and interrelating or interlacing the sequences of scenes, the constant permutations of the variations every five minutes or so, the continual changes of perspectives, the reiterated use of flashback, the difficulty for the spectator to clearly differentiate the end of a scene and the beginning of a new combination, the random non-linear deployment of the six narrative axis, all of these features converge to make it impossible for the spectator to know what really happened. There are the aesthetic obstacles by which, to use Ricoeur's terminology, history ceases to pass. <coughs> But the narrative's irresolution is also determined by the work's mise-en-abîme of testimony. One of the most destabilizing features of Klatsassin is its accumulation of contradictory testimonies submitted to random permutations, contradictions that are amplified by the absence of any common language between some of the protagonists and the numerous translation errors during the trial. The interrogation of the prisoner, for example, leads to fundamental uh, um, inaccuracy, uh, inaccurate, uh, um, I mean, false translations between English, French, and Tsilkotin, um, um, uh, and even German, leading to a false confession of guilt on the part of the prisoner. So these testimonies are impossible to unify. The permutational mise-en-scene of this accumulation takes its main source of inspiration from, from Rashomon, a, film, uh, um, a Japanese crime mystery film made in 1950 uh, by um, Akira uh, um, Kurosawa, known for its representation of contradictory testimonies by four witnesses reporting different versions of the story of a supposed murder, and in fact it might be a suicide, of a samurai. Time doesn't allow me to discuss the similarities and differences between Rashomon and Klatsassin. Suffice it to say that the notion of the Rashomon effect takes its name from Kurosawa's film. The term is used to designate the subjectivity of perception at the moment of recall and its main consequence. 
Different observers may produce substantially different, though equally plausible, accounts of the same event. In Klatsassen, the multiplication of the, permuta the permutations amplifies that impasse. Who saw what? Can we ever be sure of what we see, of what we remember? Who is lying? Who knows if one is lying? Are lies an integral, integral part of narratives? Who is telling the truth? How does one evaluate the credibility of a witness? And how are we, the spectators, to evaluate that credibility? So Klatt Sassen exemplifies the reality that historians must face, which is world events do not present themselves as neatly encapsulated stories. Ricard was certainly one of the pivotal uh, um, contemporary philosophers to have reflected upon the question of testimony and its crucial role in the constitution of the historical narrative. His book, Memory, History, Forgetting, uh, establishes testimony as a point of departure of the historical narrative. The witness's testimony provides for Ricoeur, and I quote, the description of the experience seen in a narration that, that confines itself to conveying information. It gives a narrative follow-up to declarative memory. End of quote. In its narration, testimony binds together, and I quote again, the reality of the past thing and the presence of the narrator uh, at the place of its occurrence. End of quote. So it takes place in a dialogical um, exchange with someone else, a judge, a historian, a reader, a spectator, other protagonists of the event. A dialogue in which the witness, as victim, observer, or actor, attests that the scene to which she or he has assisted has indeed occurred. This means that the witness wants to be believed, anticipating, as it were, the evaluation of the testimony. When the testimony is gathered and recorded, transformed into an archive, the complex question of the trustworthiness of the testimony continues. The trustworthy witness is a witness who can stay steadfast about, uh, about this testimony over time, and whose testimony is supported by other testimonies and facts. But the establishment of the witness's trustworthiness is made impossible in Klatsassen, not only because of the contradictory testimonies the narrative incessantly piles up, but also because of the very nature of the live algorithm that activates the random 840 permutations of the narrative combinations that structurally mimic the contradictory testimonies. No stability allows us to measure or verify the veracity of what is said of what has occurred actually, of what has actually happened. The coherence of the, of the historical narrative, the synthesis of the heterogeneous, the very coordination of disparate events, of disparate events, and the very condition of the legibility of the multiple is entirely dissolved. Yet, although the recombinations of Klatsassen's sequences shatter the role of testimony, as a cornerstone of the historiographical practice, and all that a spectator will never be in a position to know exactly who murdered the sheriff. The installation invites the spectator to go with irresolution. That's the way not to be frustrated by the work and to actually start to enjoy it. 
to experience Klatsassen as a narrative about an unresolved historical narrative. Its production of interminable of, um, uh, of an interminable history is a response to what the installation strives to counter, the progress-oriented historical narrative by which certain categories of being are erased to secure a colonial resolution of history. To bring back the question of my paper, how, does, how do Douglas's historical narratives presentify or past presentify the, more, the modern regime of historicity? Well, the answer is that they change the register of the productivity of the historical narrative. That is, the productivity of the historical narrative does not come from the coherence of the testimonies or our aptitude to interpret them or our competence to represent the past as it was. As spectators, we are exposed to irresolution. We are invited to affectively and perceptually experience a past that does not exist as a resolved past. The past persists in the present, waiting for resolution, a resolution which may never come. This persistence of the past in the present <laughs> is supported by the third aesthetic operation I want to briefly discuss today, which is long durée. The total running time the, role, the total running times of Douglas's recombinant works are consistently, and here I'm speaking of measured time, long durée, long span times, uh, one hour and a half, for example, but also 60, 67 hours, 157 hours, 20,000 hours, and even, allegedly, we can't verify this, infinity. Klatsassen's protracted structuration of the historical narrative can be said to aesthetically materialize. Uh, Fernand Baudet's structuring of historical narrative, uh, of historical periods, into long durée. For the analyst historian, long durée is a construction of time that counters traditional histories concerned for the short time span for the individual and the event. It seeks to embrace large periods of time and geographical amplitudes. It reveals the permanencies of a civilization. It's a slowed down time, quasi-immobile quasi temporality, which sometimes almost borders on the motionless, sheltered from all accidents, crises, and sudden breaks. So that says long recombinant historical narratives uh, embrace long durée, the narrative here, for example, in Tlatsassin is 67 hours long, but it does so by breaking long durée into short scenes, bringing back the inventful that Brodel wanted to remove from the historical narrative. But eventfulness is not so much represented but acted out by the video sequencing that disturbs the linearity of the narrative. This means that the long span time is not erased, but it is surely exacerbated. It is unperceivable in its totality, and this unperceivability combines with the reiterated reshuffling of sequences and the minimal beam of this testimony to create irresolution. The long span time cannot settle once and for all into a coherent historical period. So I want to push this notion of exacerbated long span time a bit further, 
so as to account for the spectator's affective experience of the historical narrative. A variation, uh, okay, I don't have the image here, but you saw it on the screen. A variation of, of a sequence emerges, disappears, and then re-emerges again and again in Klatsassen. This is a sequence, the first sequence that we saw today, the sequence of a prospector and his new partner circulating in circles in various landscapes on their way to the Bakerville goldfields, in which the prospector tells the story of the murder of the deputy sheriff. The scene staged by the different sectors of the sequence is set, is set five years um, after the murder in 1869. So each time a section of the scene reemerges, the prospector announces to his associate that they are going to the wrong, in the wrong direction and that he is far from convinced of his capacity to bring them to destination. This, this recombinant, the recombinant permutations of the scenes together with the narrative piling up of clashing testimonies and the impersibility of the narrative as a whole are not without confirming the circularity of movement enacted by these two protagonists. These converging aesthetic operations invite the spectator to follow the lead, to acknowledge that she or he might be on the wrong track and to follow another, another lead ad vitam. The convergence of the permutations, the depreciation of testimony and the long durée produces a history that surpasses our capacity, the spectator's capacity of understanding. It collapses the totalizing impulses of the modern regime of historicity. It must be seen as generating the possibility of a sublime experience in the spectator, devoid, however, of its transcendent dimension. This reemergence and redefinition of the sublime in Douglas's original, is Douglas's original contribution to the temporal term um, that I've been speaking about you know, since the 90s, and there lies the productivity of his temporal investigations. In its modern formulation, the sublime designates affects of astonishment, fear, and excess experienced by the subject uh, when the subject is confronted with and overtaken by amplitudes she or he cannot understand. These amplitudes are perceived, especially in Kant's, or also in Berg's definition of the term, as formless and boundless, but can eventually, in Kant at least, uh, um, they can eventually be overcome by reason. Referring to uh, Nutka, a video installation in which two distinct, two distinct images of the same landscape of Nootka Sounds, British Columbia, are interlaced on the same screen, producing a seamless image which uh, went in sync, but a split image when pulled apart, Douglas explains that the experience of the sublime in the natural world always forces humans to confront the question of the position to adopt in relation to that world. And this is what he, so I'm quoting here, are you able to assume a position transcending the natural world, or are you subject to its influence as a part of it? Clearly, it is the second option to be subject to the influence uh, of, of the world, to be part of the world, and without this capacity, let's say, of understanding its fullness, that is favored in the forever unresolved recombinant clat assassin. 
Douglas's recombinant installation contemporizes, contemporizes the sublime. It makes history random, repeatable, unframable, contradictory, unending, and unperceivable, while incapac incapacitating the subject's modern ability to supposedly to transcend that exacerbated long durée. It urges us to go with, to be part of this exacerbated, this exacerbated long durée. Why? Because the resolution of the historical narrative is a modality by which the modern past can be felt as persisting in the present, and as such, modifiable in the present, for the sake of a future. One of the main productivities of this historical sublime is that it questions modern history as an end. For example, the Hegelian emancipation of the spirit or the Marxist emancipation of the proletariat, but more generally, the production of the future by an erasure of the present and by a devaluation of the past. If art challenges, and if contemporary art challenges here, the modern regime of historicity, it does so by instituting in resolution as one of the most critical features of a new form of historical time that works to bring closer the space of experience and the horizon of expectation. Thank you very much. Christine, that was fantastic. Um, I was asked to prepare a response. I haven't read. I hadn't read Christine's paper. Can you hear me? Yep. I hadn't read Christine's paper, but I have read her book, and I did wish that her book was out when I was writing my book because there are many kinds of similar overlaps and concerns there. Uh, but I would like to just restress this: the relationship between time and history that we've been talking about for the last couple of days, and return to one of the most basic and common conceptions of time, and that's the idea of time as a river. A river with eddies and currents that will always be different every time you cross it, but that will nonetheless flow in a direction towards the sea, towards the future. And we can contrast this idea of time with the idea of space-time as a fused entity, of time and space as a single block. In this model, time does not flow there is no simple transition between the now and the then. If all space exists simultaneously, then theoretically we can argue that all time exists simultaneously too. In the words of science fiction author, very unfashionable science fiction author, Norman Spinrad, quote, the universe is not as tidy as you would like it to be. Time is not really a straight line, nor space three-dimensional. It is possible to be all places at once. It is possible to be all times at once. Uh, Amy was talking about this, the muscular fantasy of the omnipresent time frame. But I think um, Stan Douglas would also probably agree with this conception of the, of the, the messiness that Christine is talking about, of history as well as time. The difficulty I have with it is that neither model really explains why we feel the flow of time so closely. This, the resonance that we have of time passing, why we register its effects biologically, why things grow old and die, why we can't remember the future, why we can't touch the people who've died, why the accumulation of time leads towards entropy and change and death. And this, this brings a certain perplexity to the observer's position because it's hard to reconcile our intuitive 
everyday experience of temporal um, ex temporal experiences with the sort of universe that, say, uh, you know, visualized in Borges's story of the Garden of Forking Paths, when he talks about the universe unfolding as a dizzying convergent net of parallel times in which, quote, time forks perpetually towards innumerable futures, also something that I think would um, accurately sum up uh, Stan's work. And one of the key suggestions in Christine's book is that it is in part because of this split between the observation of time and its analytic complexities that narrative has assumed such a significant role in historiography. Uh, this is the idea of narrative as um, an antidote to tenselessness, something that I really enjoyed um, in the book, where Christine talks about the tenseless explanation that stipulates that it is our beliefs that presuppose the passage of time. So if time is tenseless, the flow of time is mind-dependent, a product of perception or a human construct. But as an historian, you, you, know, you, you, sort of, you want to be seduced into the idea at least that, that time can be non-human, that time can be deep, that time can be experienced in, in a fossilized manner to the Big Bang onwards. And similarly, that realities, that the realities studied by the historian are actually realities, despite never being directly accessible as such. I think it was Roncier who said, um, history is premised on the basic assumption that somewhere, sometimes, something happens. But the stories we tell ourselves about the past frame our understandings of the present. Clearly, this, like as the discussion of Douglas's work uh, reveals, this is a classic historiographic conundrum. The idea that history as a discursive construct is inseparable from narrative concerns. Uh, therefore, the kinds of narratives that are employed will have a bearing on the shape of the histories that are produced. So how do you create an historical narrative that leaves room for gaps, ellipses, or repetitions? That you can create an historical narrative that is decoupled from the relentless forward motion of modern progress, this, the regime of presentism. How to tell a story without a beginning, a middle, or an end. A story that enables multiple points of view or generates ambient perspectives. Why is this necessary? What was the impetus for its occurrence? And of course, there are numerous formal devices that are used by artists, not just Douglas, um, also in the works of Pierre Huyghe, Douglas Gordon, Melika Hanyan, Tessa Dean, some of the other artists who are discussed by Christine in her book. Filmic devices such as loops, audiovisual dissonances, narrative devices of non-linear or double time, flashbacks, flash forwards, stories incorpor incorporating faulty testimonies delivered by unreliable narrators, untrustworthy witnesses. These, these are kinds of what I think of agents of interruption that speak not of a history in time, but a history through time, like this sort of saturation, thickening of it, that makes history uh, unable to um, be dissolved cleanly, like it makes the past unable to be dissolved cleanly, like an aspirin in a glass of water. It is in this way that the modern regime of historicity is presentified or made to wait and to linger with us in the present. And I love this idea um, because it, it, it sort of, it suggests that time is unable to give up the ghost. It's a, it's a clear parallel with sort of ideas of haunting and spectrology. Um, also, what I've called elsewhere the zombification of history, the idea that in contemporary history, at least, the past always appears in the present as an undead thing, making the art historian into either a necromancer or a necrophiliac, a zombie object. And what I was thinking about when I was listening to, the, to that talk is how much technology or the technological apparatus um, enables that to happen. Um, and so as a kind of as a counterpoint, because it's, it's easy to think about when you're talking about com computational algorithms, but how do you do it without screen time, without montage, without 
you know. So one of the projects that came to mind was um, Pierre Puig in 1995. He founded an association, Association de Temple Liberté, the Association of Freed Time. And it was his contribution to a group exhibition curated by Liam Gillick in Dijon. And all of the artists in the exhibition were invited to join this association, which was registered officially on the day that the exhibition opened. And the idea was to generate a formal collaborative structure for exchange that would endure beyond the starting dates that were imposed by the museum. So there's this kind of, this museological imposition of time codes that is in contrast to the kinds of you know, irresolutions of the works themselves. And this was one of the major motivations for the founding of the association, the idea of this discrepancy between the flexibility of the artworks and the temporality that was imposed by the formatting of the museum. So not simply what is the time of art, but when? Or in, as Sweet said, why should an exhibition last five weeks? Why not a year? Why not a lifetime? Why not an intermittent existence? And it was important that he said it was a freed time, not free time. It was freed time because it was liberated from something, which implies a force that was previously subjugating it, that was previously holding it somewhere, that was previously like pressuring it to behave in a manner that was, in fact, tidy. Under these terms, the exhibition would signal not the end of a production process, Pierre said, uh, but a departure point for something else. And this comes back to the idea that time, that the time of art is not comparable to the duration of a film necessarily, or uh, that a story in a book is still present when we're not reading it, that a character in a film persists beyond the point that the camera is switched off or the credit sequence rolls, that a painting still has presence even when maybe it's covered. And, and I just wanted to return to that quote that you, um, that you had from Stan, where he's talking about transcending the natural world or assuming its sort of influence. And I think it was, are you yes, there? There you go, yeah. So maybe if we just replace the natural world with, uh, with time, like actually we get pretty close to where we want to be. Um, historically, uh, traditionally, there's this, the perceived value of art has relied at least in part of a kind of split between the work of art being appreciated for its distillation of its times, the sort of spirit of the zeitgeist, the, the work of art is absolutely embodying its contemporaneous context and being able to signal its, um, um, the moments that have led up to the point of its creation and the hope or the desire or the idea that art can be unshackled from its lim limited temporal constraints, something that spans time zones that is somehow transcendental actually, that is obstinately out of sync. And this double demand for art to simultaneously be in and out of time generates a perverse horizon line of value a sort of feedback loop by which the present is validated by the future as a kind of, I don't know, future value now. When the past is endlessly reanimated like this, the future, once an extrapolation of the present in this modern, modernist regime of historicity, appears as a mirage. Pulled from the narrative constraints of history that time crystallizes or time congeals, it slows down. And um, I just wanted to return by way of opening discussion to um, some of Christine's words at the beginning of her book. She says, at the forefront of contemporary art today lies the understanding of time as both experiential and historical. The underlying thrust has become the disclosing and exploration of the experience of time to change the conception of history. I guess as the last, as we've been talking about for the last two days, 
this link between time and history is of crucial significance, not only as a major conceptual horizon for art, but also for what it means to actually write history, what it means to produce the books, what it means to re-narrativize these works that are resistant to narrative. Like, how do we then re-inscribe those um, rogue temporalities in the works back into the, into the format of a book where you still have to start at one point and finish at another, and there's always going to be a narrative format for that history to um, occur. Uh, and that's really, that was my response. Thanks. <laughs>